0: Jeremy, quick, name every weight loss medication or substance used for weight loss that you can think of right now in history.
1: Ozempic, Wagovi, those are the only two I know.
0: Anything ever that was ever been used for weight loss in the history of the world. Yeah,
1: ephedrine. Yes. The, I think naloxone got used for a little while. Yes, uh, All the stimulants. So I was always like trying to like take the things that would... Uh, make your heart go really, really fast. Yeah. Besides ephedrine, I can't think of what the yeah, uh, names Yeah, I mean, they just all the amphetamines. Now. Oh, Fast, Slim Fast, slim fast <laughs> Yeah. Slim fast, And there's uh, one more I'm thinking of that I can't remember.
0: I have a list in front of me because I wrote the outline. You what forgot FenFen, but that also counts oh, Fen- as Fen- like Fen. stimulants. That's uh, amphetamines. Yeah. Bupropion, digoxin, topiramate, metformin, ephedra, cocaine, thyroid hormone, all these things. And you yeah, named, I was like going to say, party. now name all the GLP-1 agonist drugs that you can think of, but you already named the two biggies. Manjuro. Yeah, and ribelsis, the oral one. Well, one thing these substances all have in common was, and whether the claims were valid or not, that they were marketed as game changers in weight management at one point in history. And apparently that hasn't changed much with the FDA approval of Wigovi, Ozempic, Semaglutide. I'll just call it Semaglutide. It's kind of like how I said posthumous wrong for a long time until I heard it said correctly. (laughs) It's not semaglutide. (laughs) Posthumous? Posthumous, yes, semaglutide. But yeah, literally the New York Times article about semaglutide published in 2021 was, A Game Changer, Drug Brings Weight Loss in Patients with Obesity. And then things like The Economist, New Drugs Could Spell an End to the World's Obesity Epidemic. This was March of 2023. The New Yorker, Will the Ozempic Era Change How We Think About Being Fat or Thin? March of 2023. New York Magazine in February of 2023. Life After Food. (laughs) And the last one is the Wall Street Journal. Ozempic Settles the Obesity Debate. Do you think it's been settled, Jeremy?
1: It feels like this just comes in waves. That something comes out, it's going to be the next big thing and then a million people use it and then it falls out of favor and then the next big thing comes out because the finish line never seems to change here. It's always like, well, we have to make all of the, you know, everybody has to be skinny. So there's got to be a solution here. So, but and I think this is probably where you're headed here, these new ones seem to come with some baggage that is more than just making people skinny and it's an interesting conversation. I also feel like you can't go two seconds or flip a radio station. You know what those are, Julie, like radio stations? I don't know what that is. I've never heard of it. But if you flip those things, I feel like you can't go very far without hearing an ad for this or somebody talking about this or whatever. It's just, it's everywhere. So we're going to talk about it because we want to join the party.
0: Yeah. We've touched on the GLP-1 agonist class of medications in episode 41 with our favorite pharmacist, Greg Costelli, in March of this year. So if you're looking for like the nitty gritty about pharmacokinetics and about this medication class itself, listen to that episode. That's a primer for this one. Also... I think required reading for any discussion about GLP-1 agonists is their episode of maintenance phase with Aubrey Gordon and Michael Hobbs. I listened to it twice (laughs) in anticipation of this discussion. So thank you to them. Hopefully I didn't rip them off too much. But yeah, the focus of our discussion today is, do we have an idea of the long-term consequences and outcomes of these new weight loss medications? And then that spurred a whole bunch of sub-questions I think we're going to we're going to touch on as well. Meaning, can they deliver on what the initial studies, including the STEP trials and the SELECT trial, purport? Are there more long-term benefits for cardiovascular protection and treatment of metabolic disease, irrespective of weight loss effects? Do these medications actually bolster anti-fat bias in the U.S.? Like, for example, using Ozempic and Wegovi for weight loss is considered by some to be the easy way out, Since historically, society shows more disdain for health conditions that it discerns to be virtue-driven, like diabetes and metabolic disease, even though semaglutide is prohibitively expensive and is currently in massive shortage. So I guess that's the easy way out. But all these questions and more, I think we're going to delve into We're going to try to keep it tight. And thankfully, we have our very good friend and renowned expert in the field of weight and lifestyle medicine to help us understand more of the context.
1: Yeah, I think the episode with maintenance phase, they really made a a point to say that they are the public health kind of analysis of this, that if you wanted to go out and individually use this drug, they don't really give a shit. And I think they use that exact phrase. (laughs) And I think where we're coming from is we want to be the other part of that conversation of How does this affect you actually as a patient or as a person and say, should I take this medication? Or, you know, I'm somebody who struggled with weight loss forever. Is this something I should be considering? Or I was just finally coming around to feeling like I was happy with my body and now people are telling me again, I shouldn't. I need to do something different. Like now do I have to rechange all that? So yeah. I think this conversation needs to frame on how does this change from a medical professional's perspective? If you're going to go see a doctor, how does this, how does this change the game in that regard?
0: Yeah, I agree. How can we throw our expertise into the ring as well? And I'm happy to have the discussion. Sweet. Brad, let's do it. <laughs> Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name is Julie Bruni. And
1: I'm Jeremy Allen, And we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help.
0: We want to be your doctor friends. All right. Welcome back to our great friend, Dr. Naomi Perella. You may remember Dr. Perella from episode three. Three. (laughs) You heard that. Three of this podcast. Actually, not this podcast exactly. We were still called What the Health back then. (laughs) Dr. Perella is a graduate of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. They were our rivals when I went to college at U of I. (laughs) They beat us in everything. She also went to Loyola Stritch School of Medicine, and she is double board certified in family medicine and obesity medicine, she's the chief of lifestyle medicine at Rush University. She's the medical director for Rush University Center for Weight Loss and Lifestyle Medicine. She's the director of a whole bunch of awesome shit at Rush <laughs> and is generally a, a lovely human being who has, it gives us very meaningful insights into some really sticky situations. Dr. Perella, why did you choose this field? It, it seems very difficult.
2: This field actually chose me. Even before I became a doctor, I used to go out into like rural Wisconsin and whatever and teach aerobics and help people in the farming communities. Before there were gyms out there, I would go out to the elementary school gymnasiums and like teach them how to be fit. And, and over time, those classes grew and you know we had to move into the high school gymnasium and so on. Ultimately, I started hearing questions about blood pressures and medications. I was like an undergrad. I had no idea what a normal blood pressure was or what any of the medications were that people were talking about. And became very interested in just kind of understanding what what uh, was going on with people's health. So long story short, ended up having a family and then going to med school. Decided to go into family medicine so I could take care of all ages of people, still deliver babies, do procedures, all the fun stuff that family docs get to do. and went into private practice and started teaching people about their health outside of just the medical, here's medications or here's procedures, here's treatments. And so my patients started losing weight and they were getting healthier. And over time, people started referring patients to me for weight loss treatment and to lose weight. So that part of my practice just exploded and it kind of took over my whole practice. So I just started doing mostly that in addition to primary care. And ultimately, uh, after a couple of other experiences building out weight loss programs, I was recruited to Rush to start a medical weight loss program here at Rush. And it's been organic. I love, love, love what I do. And it's so much fun seeing people figure out what their metabolism is doing and then mastering it.
1: Ooh. You got to dive more into that. That was a nice tease. How do I figure out what my metabolism is and master it?
2: (laughs) Yeah, totally. So you know, one of the really cool things, so for so many years in the past, I used to tell everybody, eat less, exercise more. Because of course, that's what we were all trained. It's calories in, calories out. And shockingly, and not shockingly now, in retrospect, nobody was able to lose weight and keep it off, right? And so I was like, what the hell? People would say, oh, you know, your people are not really being honest with you. They're probably eating more than they say they're eating. They're probably not exercising that much. And I'm like, well, I'm teaching the classes. I see them exercising. I can't believe that 100% of people are somehow misrepresenting what they're doing, right? That just can't be. The common denominator was the advice I was giving. So I thought, this is where the problem is. So I went back and did, you know, more reading and looked at what people were doing around the world to manage weight in ways that supported health. And turns out it's not so simple. It's not calories in, calories out. It's really about what you put in your body and how it signals your metabolism. And your metabolism is how your body uses fuel, how it functions. And so that's when the lights went on and I started trying different things and saw tremendous amount of success with my patients who blew my mind with what they could do. I would say, I'm not sure if this is going to work, but what we've tried before isn't working. Let's try this. And I've heard, you know, I've read about this or somebody's told me about these different things that have worked for them. And along the way, I started seeing, okay, if you can manage to shift your metabolism so that you can have access to all the fuel on your body, meaning the fat cells, Now you can burn fat. Now you can get into a healthy metabolic state. Your energy goes up. Everything feels so much better. So that's really how that all happened. Naomi, don't you find it interesting that the first feedback you got
0: when you were saying, huh, this kind of older school way of thinking of, you know, people just need to move more and take in less calories. And then you were reflecting on how your patient population wasn't maintaining their weight loss and that the feedback to you was... (laughs) They're probably lying to you. <laughs> Isn't that just a perfect microcosm for how the societal context of of weight and weight management in you know in the US it's just yeah. like well it's definitely that they're lying and that they're hiding things from you. Not that, not that, that our, our approach to this is wrong, but the patient isn't trying hard enough or they're, or they're, they're being misleading. Yeah, and I just yeah, think that's absolutely. so think, ironic and you know perfect. One <laughs> of the
2: things that I think has been a disservice for many people is they'll go see a healthcare provider and they will say, I'm experiencing this. The provider says, oh, well, here's the solution or here's why. And there's a lot of assumptions that often go into that. And then the patient's like, that's not really, that doesn't match my lived experience, right? But the doctor has credibility, has all this training. So it's easy for people to stop believing their own bodies and their own experience and start thinking, well, I must just not be doing a good job. There's something wrong with me right so so many times i will start with a patient and they come in and they start out telling me well i know there's something wrong with me and in fact that's not true most of the time it's that the body's been getting the wrong signals and so it's really doing a great job taking care of somebody if it's if you're gaining weight so that you don't develop type 2 diabetes right away right and your body's trying to prevent that and you're gaining extra weight yeah your body was taking care of you And it was just getting the wrong message. That's not what you wanted.
1: With the context being that we're going to talk in this episode a little bit of short-term, long-term, meaning what does the short-term data show do we know long-term, you anecdotally talked about how you had noticed in your early phases that people weren't losing weight. A... How did you notice that? Meaning, was it a was it obvious because it was everybody? Was it something that kind of crept up on you? Were you following it? And then subsequent question would be, is now that you're doing it this new way, how long have you been doing it and are you seeing longer lasting things? Like, is it short-term, is it long-term? That kind of thing.
2: Yeah, great questions. So you can tell when people come back and they're just discouraged or they don't come back at all because they're like, okay, I'm failing, Right. It's not hard to know when somebody is disappointed. And so, if somebody's making a tremendous effort and they're like, I've been working so hard, I'm hardly eating anything, and my weight's not budging. A lot of times people assume that's actually not true and they're secretly eating or whatever. But actually, they really are probably not eating very much. It's probably just the wrong things they're eating. So since about 2013 was when I really just kinda changed what I was doing. I had one patient who opened my eyes. She was actually not my regular patient. So I was in this practice doing primary care and you know had other family docs in the same practice with me. And one of them happened to be out of town. So I was covering and I saw this patient come into my office. And she had obesity and you know, a lot of other health problems, type two diabetes and asthma and hypertension and sleep apnea and her joints were hurting and nobody was gonna do surgery on her because she had excess weight and it was gonna be, put her at risk for anesthesia. So she came and saw me and it was not for weight. It was not for anything other than she had a cold. And she was, you know, her asthma was flaring up and she hadn't been on the medications for a while. And when I met with her, you know, I asked her about her medications and about her asthma. And she said, Yeah, I, I don't come to the doctor's office because I know what you're all going to say. You're going to tell me to lose weight. And I was like, Ouch, like that <laughs> was really painful, right? I mean, for asthma, she was not coming in, you know, it, it's a breathing issue. So I said, Well, let's address this. If you do want to work on your weight, it's something I love to do. So I'd be happy to team together with you on that. And she was like, no, I've done everything. And she left and was a little bit insulted, probably a lot insulted that I even mentioned that. Well, she showed up in my office again a couple of weeks later. And this time she said, I'm just coming for follow-up. And I was like, oh, okay, this is great. So Had her regular appointment. She was doing great. We made sure she had her meds. And I said, you know, follow up with your regular primary care doctor so they can see how good you're doing. She showed up again in my clinic a little bit later. And she said, well, I suppose maybe, you know, we could talk about my weight a little bit. And she was very resistant and terrified to talk to me about it because she'd been so disappointed in the past by people who had made judgments. And We just talked and I said, okay, you can make an appointment for follow-up and we can talk about some of the weight things and you can just tell me your story. So as we worked together over time, I saw her start from being very resistant for any medical care to engaging, wanting to know more, wanting to understand more. And she ended up losing 158 pounds without medications or surgery. This is a woman who came in with a walker and then at the end was on a treadmill working out. So I saw with my own eyes something that I thought was not possible, that, that she blew my mind. And I was like, okay, this is somebody everyone gave up on. She gave up on herself as well. But with the right knowledge and understanding and with sort of trial and error where we were like, let's try this, let's try that. She jumped in she's crushing it. No more diabetes. She's on hardly any medications, right? I mean, it was pretty cool. So she showed me what was possible, even though if I had told you from the start, I wouldn't have said maybe 20 pounds, right? I would have had no idea this was possible.
0: I love that story for a lot of reasons. And I think it inspires a lot of thoughts in my mind of like, how one, how sad it is first off to like not feel like you can trust yourself when people are saying like, well, maybe I'm secretly eating and I don't know it. Like what a horrible mind space to be in. I'm yeah. like, well, I don't know if reality is real anymore. So like one, that made me think of that. And two, like, you know, I feel what you're talking about, Naomi, when, when you hear a patient and someone that you're meeting for maybe the first time and hearing their lived experience be, I am so sick of hearing doctors, what sounds like blow me off and not want to address my actual health concerns, but just tell me that I should lose weight or try this diet or try this thing that. And one, you know, I think the concern we hear a lot or that I hear a lot is, you know, doctors prescribe fat people diets without ever asking them what they eat or telling them that they need to exercise more, without ever asking them what they do to move. And I, it's just when you said that that was painful to hear how frustrated she was. One I think that shows a sense of empathy and that's probably why she came back to you was that, you know, you can feel that sense of, you know, it it hurts me to to even just witness your struggle, which sounds a little heavy-handed and a little haughty on my on my behalf. But I get what you're saying and I think it's just it's kudos to you, but also kudos to that patient for willing to put up and give another doctor a try because it sounds like so many had blown her off and maybe failed her. And and it's not that people that are higher weight are too lazy or too misinformed. I think sometimes they clearly have valid reasons not to trust the system because it fails them over and over and over again and tells them that they're wrong. And so I just love hearing that story about you giving her an opportunity to We've had, give you um, a chance to trust you. you um, know?
1: Reagan Chastain on in the past, who's you know an expert kind of in health at every size and and fat advocacy and and such. And you know, one of the things that's a very prominent pillar of that That group is not feeling that medical care is offered to them similar to somebody of a different body size, whether it be for asthma or knee arthritis, that it's always told you need to lose weight and then your asthma wouldn't be as bad. So I think what you described there was an an anecdote of that and a reason why sometimes people of larger bodies don't present to the doctor until things are really, really bad. And then we give them the label that it's always worse than somebody who is of a larger body but they don't want to go in because of all these experiences that they've had. I want to plug a little further into her real quick because I want to know, I mean that's an anecdote, right? That's a single person and she sounds like she did great. Why do you think she did so great? And like how do you communicate to somebody who's listening right now and says like great, I mean I cared just as much as that woman did and I didn't I haven't had that experience.
2: There's a couple of things. I think First of all, it's not that doctors don't have compassion or empathy for their patients. So when somebody is frustrated because they don't have an answer to solve somebody else's problem, doctors want to solve problems, right? So if we've been mistrained or not trained in how to help somebody with certain illness or disease, that's really hard for us, right? We don't actually want to jump in there because it's a little scary and what we know can harm somebody. Unfortunately, we don't get a lot of training in how to understand metabolism. I don't know what your training has been. My training was listen to the patient. So that's what I do. Then I was told things like have them eat low fat and hardly any calories and then they're gonna, you know, work off the extra calories they eat and then they'll be miraculously A new size, everything will fall into place and they'll do great. That does not work that way, right? The body adapts. And so what we want to do is we want to understand there's many ways to be healthy. And just like there's many ways to be unhealthy, so there's not a one size fits all. If I gave a hundred people specific dietary recommendations, specific activity recommendations, and sent them off on their way, they would come back different sizes. Not because some of them weren't doing it and some of them were doing it, but just because their metabolism is going to respond differently, right? So certain foods cause some people to go into a fat storing state and their body packs on weight. And that's not because they didn't try hard enough. It's because that's how their metabolism works with a certain signaling pattern. Right. So if I in medical school am trained, people should eat less ex- calories and exercise more. And I tell a patient that that will work for some people, but a very small percentage. And then the body adapts to that lower calories. And so now you have to go even lower if you want to lose any more weight. There's only so much you can keep cutting calories. Instead, if we change the signaling in the body, so that the body can burn fat for fuel we have fat cells on the body as our backup fuel so if we can teach people how to get into that those fat cells to burn the fuel you have a lot of good fuel on your body already you'll have great energy you won't actually be as hungry because you can tap into your backup fuel so that's what we're trying to do with individuals is find what's that person's switch that allows them to get back into a fat burning state. Cutting calories doesn't work for everyone all the time. And so unfortunately that's the one one thing we've been taught, right? If anything.
1: With that patient you had what was an example do you remember an example of something that you guys did that worked well for her to get into that fat burning zone?
2: In her case and anybody with type 2 diabetes, okay? They have insulin resistance. Somebody with PCOS likely has insulin resistance. Somebody with fatty liver has insulin resistance. Somebody with prediabetes has insulin resistance. If your waistline is growing, that's evidence of insulin resistance. And insulin resistance means you have very high baseline insulin levels in your body. And if you have high insulin, you can't burn fat. Period. It's off. So it's as if you don't, your body doesn't even know you have a backup fuel tank of fat cells to burn. Right? So that's going to drive eating, not only like a little bit, like a lot. And it's going to drive you to eat more frequently. And usually it's the sugars and starchy carbs and the ultra processed foods that you're going to be like, oh, that's what I really want right now.
0: Yeah, I think we touched on this in one of our more recent episodes with Greg Dodell, the endocrinologist, talking about that insulin resistance patterns can, one, be a harbinger for prediabetes and diabetes, but also it can be sort of a chicken and egg situation where... Because your insulin levels are so high and your body cannot utilize the sugar that's flowing around in your bloodstream, yes. now you're going to crave more carbs yeah. and sugar because you're, you're not being able to utilize that that
2: fuel source. So it kind of sounds like you're saying the same thing or similar things, Naomi, right? Exactly, exactly. Your body is seeking an IV infusion of glucose all the time then.
0: Even though you already have potentially higher levels of glucose access
2: them because floating of around the insulin, there, you just can't right? access so them. So insulin stores everything. So if you have high insulin, what is your body doing? It's trying to store all the sugars in your bloodstream, which means you don't have anything left to burn. So then you have to go get some more, right? And the fastest way to do that is to get the sugars and starchy carbs. So in that patient, and in many patients, just by reducing insulin, you will start burning fat. So when your insulin is low, you automatically tap into your fat cells and you have access to your fat cells for fuel. So what are some ways to do that? Number one would be eating like a low carb pattern, right? Or low sugar. People talk about a glycemic load. You could also do intermittent fasting. You can also do exercise that's not highly strenuous, right? Because if you do a high stress, like a high intensity interval training, then you'll end up spiking your cortisol and your sugars will go up. But what you're trying to do is things like go for a walk or bike ride or swim. Those would be ways you lower insulin. That's a a
0: fascinating kind of look into this one particular individual's sort of weight loss journey. And while results are not typical for every single person, you know, clearly it's cool to see you show the receipts and say, well, this is what we did for this lady. And it worked particularly for her because of her constellation of her body makeup and her metabolism and what she needed. And that's why it worked for that person. And Jeremy, unless you would like to keep on this path, I would love to kind of circle back to the idea now that now we have this new class of medications that's supposed to work for every person and kind of dive into what they are and what the data shows and what what we really think about that, about using it in the real world versus in these controlled trials of or many, 17,000 people or something.
1: Does that sound okay? Yeah, I'll make one more comment. I think one of the cool things about what you described there, Naomi, as we get into this, what does this world look like of lifestyle medicine now that we have these new game-changing medications, is many of the conditions that you described in which people have high insulin are not necessarily something somebody did wrong to end up in that position. And therefore there's a huge genetic determinant to this. There's factors that we don't even understand. And therefore comes down this pathway that we've spent a lot of time on this podcast, but continue to learn more about in which it is not necessarily, I should, I'm going to rephrase. It is not the individual's fault that they are a larger bodied individual. Many of the times it is not mean everybody, but many of the times. And again, comes down to the fact that we think of when you can't lose weight as a failure, it's a behavioral problem. It's something you weren't trying hard enough. And what you just described was a world in which we look at this as more of a metabolic issue. It's a it's it's a medical condition. It has genetic components. Many of it is out of your control, but there are things that we can do to try to work into it. And then there's one more thing, Julie, that may set the stage for this conversation, but we've asked this question on this podcast before. And I think it really is the question that I think I would love to get. We've had other perspectives is maybe another way of saying this. I'm interested in your perspective. And it gets us into this next conversation of, is the goal to have us being all the same size? Do we all need to be this size? Another way of saying that is, if I'm metabolically healthy, does it matter what I look like?
2: It's a wonderful question. And obviously, I would say no, we don't have to all be the same size. And so, you know, we know there's metabolically healthy, obese individuals, right, with metabolically healthy bodies, even if they have a higher BMI or they carry excess weight. There's also individuals who have who are thin on the outside, fat on the inside called TOFI. And that is a term that's used to describe visceral fat around the organs. Right? And that's unhealthy. So, somebody might have a normal BMI, okay? And I hate BMI, so I kind of almost don't even want to say that. But but somebody might be considered normal (laughs) weight by the medical standards and still have unhealthy excess fat tissue around their organs and in their liver. And that would be not healthy. And then again, you can have people with extra weight who might be bodybuilders and their BMI like, might look like they're overweight or obese, or you might have individuals who carry extra weight and it's under the skin, but on top of all the muscles. and that And so there might still be what looks like excess fat tissue that could be mechanically difficult on the joints. And you probably experience individuals who are working out, they feel great. They might have, their center of gravity might be a little bit off when they're doing, let's say, kettlebell swings or something. And then they might have an injury because of some extra tissue in certain areas of the body. That would be, but that's
1: not metabolically unhealthy. Yeah. So in the case that, and, and again, Julie and I have talked about this, we, we saw this posted at some point, the metabolically healthy, but obese. And the first reaction we both had to each other was, why did the obese have to be in the word? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Can, can you just be metabolically healthy? Like, <laughs> like obese can you just to put a bow the on end. that, if somebody walked in and, you know, had a BMI of, 40, so we're talking about what would, would have previously been called morbidly obese, walked into your office and has no diabetes, has no signs of hypertension, has no metabolic thyroid, metabolic issue at all, is, is healthy as can be, not on not on medications, and says to you, should I lose weight, what would your response be to that person? It's
2: not up to me to decide if, if their insulin level is fine, all their labs are fine, there's no evidence, they're, they're unlimited despite you know whatever a bmi they have it's up to them right it's up to the individual at that point if the health situation is there's some evidence that there's a problem that's going to limit them further and progress then i would say this would be a great time for us to turn this around but it's less about the weight it's about getting the metabolism working right the weight is a side effect I think of weight as a manifestation of the state of the body. And it may or may not be healthy or unhealthy, right? So weight is its what people focus on, but it's actually a side effect of something else. And it might just be, you know, not such a big deal on that person.
1: These are such great questions. And can we measure it regularly? Is it something where I can know over a period of a month, like my insulin was really high?
2: So it's something that I would usually check maybe about every three months because I want to check it together with some other labs. But yes, you would go fasting for at least 12 hours, get your fasting insulin level checked. And that would give you a pretty good idea of if you are developing insulin resistance, because if it's low, which is what it should be when you're fasting, right? then you know you can get into a fat-burning state When you're fasting, right? If it's high, it should not be high when you're fasting, right? Because when you're fasting, you should be able to burn fat, which would mean your insulin is low. But if your insulin is high, that means you are having difficulty burning fat, which means you have less access to fuel. You're going to feel more tired. You're going to have less endurance. You're going to be more crabby. You know, just it just isn't fun because you don't have enough fuel.
1: Mm-hmm. That's so good. I'm ready for the on-ramp onto Ozempic. In- introduce, the <laughs> sum- <laughs> introduce some, aglu- some aglutide some no, me. No, I
0: think it's great. <laughs> <laughs> I, you almost did the, the posthumus. No, I think that's a great on-ramp because talking about, because these, these medications, and I won't go crazy into the pharmacokinetics of them, yeah. but yeah, they are yeah. to some degree insulin modulators. So yeah. let's dive in let's do a brief primer on semaglutide. So it's been on the market for the treatment of type 2 diabetes since 2018 under the name Ozempic. When it's prescribed for weight loss, it's called Wegovi. There's a higher dose for weight loss. I know Naomi knows all these things, but I'll just give a primer for our, uh, I was going to say our patients, oh God, our listeners. So a little background on uh, semaglutide. So in 1984, which was a great year, by the way, guys, that's when I was born. Endocrinologist at University of Toronto, Dr. Daniel Drucker, he discovered this GLP-1, so the glucagon-like peptide one. Then it showed promise in the treatment of type 2 diabetes in people, but it was hard to study in humans because it rapidly dissipated in the human body. So it was hard to, to keep an eye on it, especially in the 80s. So he, Drucker et al., searched for a more sustainable source of GLP-1 and Jeremy, you might know this if you listen to Maintenance Phase, but I wonder if Naomi might. I'm know it.
1: semi-insulted because I knew this before Maintenance Phase. This is one of my favorite.
0: And you probably do. I have no idea. I didn't know this. Yes,
1: this is one of my favorite like things from medical school, where like you certain things you never. <laughs> you
0: did. I did not know this. Forget. Okay.
1: This is one Ugh. I never. I never forgot this I one. I almost
0: had no awareness of this. <laughs> okay. 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 Well, let's see if Naomi knows it. Naomi, do you recall? Apparently, that Jeremy does of where they found this more sustainable... In what animal did they find the more sustainable source of GLP-1? Oh,
2: my god Enter the
0: Gila monster. (laughs) So the Gila monster is the largest lizard in North America, and they go through long periods of time without food and can slow their metabolism and appetite down very markedly. So the Gila monster was was the way that we were able to... (laughs)
1: I know many people GLP think that medical one, school is such a great a time and all we do is have fun.
0: <laughs> big thick lizard.
1: But realistically, <laughs> when you are studying these things and something comes up and says, the Gila monster was where we got it.
2: That is so funny. I don't remember <laughs> learning that at all in med school. <laughs> <laughs> I went to the same yeah. med school you did,
0: Jeremy. Didn't yeah. you go? You, no, Gila you went to Loyola, was, right? Yeah. That's I will hilarious. Never I don't remember this in rush. rush. I Maybe mean, I skipped that day. Gila monster. So yeah, researchers don't know, 100% know why GLP 1 agonists work exactly how they do. But the idea is that GLP-1 is released normally physiologically in our bodies after we eat, and then induces this feeling of satiety or that you don't feel like you need to eat anymore. It slows down gastric emptying so the food doesn't whoosh its way through your GI tract as quickly. It does trigger the release of insulin, and it also may help to grow pancreatic beta cells, which is where we get insulin from in our pancreas. So results for a semaglutide in type 2 diabetes and its use is remarkable. It helped to reduce hemoglobin A1c levels, which you talked about with Dr. Dodell about diabetes and prediabetes dramatically. So Dr. Perella, I would love to just get like your quick, a few sentences about your thoughts towards
2: semaglutide in in, in your
0: practice specifically. Yeah,
2: yeah. in my practice, it has been a game changer.
0: No wrong answers here.
2: So it really has given many people, I think the word that I hear the most often is a sense of control. So I've had people say things like, I used to be a bag of cookies person and now I'm a one cookie person. I have the experience of being in control and feeling like that was enough, that was okay. I just needed a little bit. And so that experience of control is probably the thing I hear most often. I'll also hear things about food noise. I'm no longer thinking about food all the time. I'm no longer wondering what my next meal is going to be or where I'm going to get it or stressing about what I'm going to eat. And so that experience of removing all the stress around food and whether or not you're going to be able to like white knuckle it and stop after one cookie or one chip or whatever, that's gone. So it's quite impressive for the individuals that this medication works very well for. Can you comment on
0: the shortages and costs of this medication and how it's real world affecting your patients?
2: So while you may have less stress about food, the stress related to accessing this medicine is very similar to like the highest level stress that we hear in a practice, right? So when somebody is first starting the medication, having to hunt it down, find out if insurance covers and whatever, is a whole ordeal that takes weeks, right? The insurance verification, if it's denied, the appeals, all of that, a lot of manpower and time and stress and follow-up. And the patients are stressed out through that whole time. It's like you're holding your breath. The other part to that is the individuals who have already started experiencing some of the effects of the medication that they like. So when they feel more in control and they start losing weight and then they go for their refill and the medication is not available and that triggers a significant anxiety. And if it lasts long enough where there's no, the medication isn't available for several weeks or insurance stopped covering it or somebody lost their job and no longer has insurance that does cover it, now there's a, almost like a panic, right? What's going to happen? And then the appetite shoots up, right? It, it returns, person starts regaining weight, they feel out of control. And again, it feels worse than even before starting the medication.
0: That makes me think of one of the step trials. And we can get into that a little bit about sort of the trials that Novo Nordisk did about this medication and why it works, how it works, who it works on. And I think it was step four that was looking at putting a whole bunch of people on semaglutide for 20 weeks and then taking them off of it and giving them a placebo. And almost universally, everybody started gaining weight back. And so I guess my concern is, Naomi, and we can get into this a bit more, is that like, is this another situation that now you have someone that if they're dependent on this medication for the rest of their life, potentially, and if they don't have access to it, is this going to turn into like a weight cycling situation that we've talked about many times before that weight cycling can be potentially even more harmful than leaving somebody at a higher weight? if they're going up and down and up and down in their weight?
2: Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. What are your thoughts on that? Here's the bottom line. If we are in agreement that obesity is a disease, similar to hypertension is a disease, okay? We don't have somebody take a blood pressure medicine, have them get to their good blood pressure control and then say, Surprise, I'm taking you off these meds. Good luck with that. You should keep your blood pressure down, right? That doesn't, that's like, that's like, we just know that's not going to work. To expect that to happen with these medications is again, ridiculous, right? So the medications, if you use medications to lose weight and that's how you've lost your weight, you need that medicine to maintain that weight loss, Right. And we know that for all other weight loss medications too. Yeah.
0: I feel like there's so much discourse about people talking about, well, I'm just going to go on Ozempic until I reach my goal weight and then I'm going to go off of it.
2: We haven't yet figured out a way to permanently change that. Right. So the medication doesn't like, it's not like it permanently changes how your metabolism has been set up. So, absolutely. Once you remove GLP1 receptor agonist activity,
0: going to
1: reset. Yeah, I don't know if I universally accept that obesity is a disease. I do think because that just implies everybody with a higher... You hate BMI. You you said that earlier. Yeah, yeah. So obesity is defined by the BMI. So obesity itself is kind of a null and void term in my opinion. But I think in the sense of if you're saying that hyperinsulinemia, having too much insulin or being metabolically unhealthy, having a bad metabolism secondary to Lots of factors leading to complications such as diabetes or whatnot. Those are diseases. Exactly. And if the cure for that disease is to then lower my, or to take a GLP-1, and then hence it cures those, and theoretically, probably also I lose a lot of weight, then that becomes a lifelong medication that is probably serving that person well, where it becomes a problem is if that patient I brought up before, the one that doesn't have metabolic problems and tries Correct. to go on it because, you know, they've been told by everybody they need to lose weight because cosmetically that's what we think. Or even more troublesome are the people who just want to lose 30 pounds because they, you know, want to be fit into the genes that they fit in the last year. Same concept as Julie just mentioned. You can't just like go on it and stop it and then expect to be in the problem. So I, I again I think we're trying to figure out maybe who the the right people are for this medication, but there's a lot of analogs here in a weird way to kind of with far less long-term studies to kind of like depression, anxiety medication, because it's a medication that most people end up being on lifelong and the medications we don't hundred percent know why they work. That has been well documented. They have side effects, but ultimately speaking the people who take them, have decided with a medical professional that the benefits have outweighed the risks and the likelihood is that they're going to be on them forever. I just think too many people are taking Ozempic right now. <laughs> that We haven't defined the right person for it.
0: Yeah, and, and I think we'll get into that because I do want to get into the select trial and to talk about some of the other cool potential metabolic and cardiovascular risk reduction because here's the thing, like, it, this is a very sticky subject because, of course it is, because we're talking about Weight management in a society that really likes to talk about obesity as an epidemic, and to even say the words, yeah, it's that, a multi-billion-dollar industry. Yeah, exactly. And to say the words that obesity is an epidemic is to imply that it's a disease, because there's no such thing as an as an epidemic of something. It isn't as a disease. So of course, like there's a tons of anti-fat bias, and there's a lot of just like heavy stuff here, pun intended. Apparently, but my point is, is yeah, like now we have this new great medication that. If this is a medication that is proving itself to save lives, then hell yeah. And I think we can all get behind that. And regardless of whether or not it saves lives because people get a little bit skinnier, but I don't think, and I think Aubrey and Michael talked about this really well, is that this is not the cure to obesity if we even need one. I think if you look at the studies, it shows that in a very controlled situation where people be are giving are given this medication for free and told to take it, and they have very little dropout rate, which was interesting in these studies and the step trials that most people stayed with it much more so than much than many other weight loss studies that people stuck with this and there's probably a, a nice conversation to have about why people stuck with it because they were seeing benefit of weight loss that is that is socially rewarded almost immediately but my point is is that great fine people lose weight sounds great now we have this situation where like you're talking about jeremy that two people are taking it but there's also this major income bias into obtaining these medications Like, clearly, not only are they expensive, they're also not anywhere because everybody wants them. And clearly, everybody wants them. And we know why, because it's hard to be fat in our society. But, like, don't we think that the prevalence of obesity and actual metabolic diseases are influenced by or correlate to poverty and resources and economic status? And doesn't it make sense to offer the cure to obesity as a medication to make it not be prohibitively expensive. (laughs) And I think, are we just so in the infancy of this medication, understanding these medications that one, as we have more time and more studies and things like the select trial, which we can get into, and I'll get off my little soapbox here that, and really the crux of what I want this whole conversation to be is what are the long-term implications of all of this? And I think some of those are just going to be question mark, question mark, question mark, but, but Naomi in particular, like this is your world. Like, are you excited about, potentially these meds or, or spurring more research to look at, okay, well, can we prevent heart attacks and strokes? Can we help people not only just to be a different number on the scale, but also are we seeing some promise about helping long-term disease prevention, I guess is what I'm getting at.
2: There's a lot there that I want to respond to.
0: Please do. I'll shut up yeah, for yeah. 12 minutes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, so, so part of this... So Jeremy, you pointed out a really good point. The metabolically healthy obese individuals are not who I'm talking about when I say this is like a game changer. I mean, it might be if they you know, feel better because of their bodies. Like I said, my goal is actually not the weight. That's the side effect. It just happens to be that weight goes in the right direction when we're achieving better health. So I'm talking about the individuals who are metabolically unbalanced, so they might have metabolic syndrome, right? That insulin resistance, that high insulin, that individual is at higher, higher risk for cancer, for heart disease, for strokes, They have a higher risk of sleep apnea, they have a higher risk of gout, they have a higher risk of fatty liver, type 2 diabetes, infertility, right? Depression, anxieties, just the list goes on. How cool is it that there's actually now a treatment available that seems to actively hit the cause of that metabolic dysfunction, right? So that's to me what's exciting. Now, do I think this medicine should be like given out like candy? Hell no. One of the concerns, actually I have several concerns with these medications. So I am not oorah, I'm like cautiously curious. That's how I think about it. We have a lot of things we have to understand. We know that in animal models, these medications do seem to increase tumor growth. That's a problem. Okay. We haven't seen that in humans yet and hopefully never, but it's definitely on my radar and I tell all my patients about it. This is a weight loss medication that has cancer as a contraindication right? Because if you have a family history or personal history of multiple endocrine neoplasia type 2 or medullary thyroid cancer, you cannot have this medication because you are at high risk then of developing a cancer, right? like We don't say that about some of these other weight loss medications, oh, that'll cause cancer for you. This has actually as a warning. So that's definitely of concern. It's not without risks. Now, the other thing is to understand, and we'll get to the disparities component as well, because that's, uh, oh my gosh, I'll be up on my soapbox forever. But the other component is this medication is so powerful, this class of medications is so powerful in suppressing appetite and causing a lack of interest in constantly eating or possibly even eating at all that individuals who are not self-regulated and able to eat enough protein and drink enough water, they can have kidney failure, they're going to lose muscle, which is aging rapidly, they're going to have functional decline. I mean, those are not okay, right? That's actually even worse. I'd rather have somebody have excess weight and be eating the appropriate nutrients. So so that's a thing, right? So I tell my patients all the time, you cannot be on this med if you cannot eat enough protein in your day. You cannot be on this med if you don't drink a ton of water all the time. And you have to make sure you don't eat within three hours of bedtime because otherwise the food is washing up because it's not moving forward. right? Those are some really important things that mm-hmm. it's not just, oh, I don't have to worry. I don't have to do anything. No, you actually have to pay attention. Eat your protein first because you're going to get too full eating your protein that then you won't eat other food. So if you start out with a cupcake, you're not going to eat your protein. So these are really, really important things about these medications that we have to make sure people understand. And people are going to the hospital with pancreatitis. It does stimulate the pancreas. And so again, if somebody has a history of that, that's a no-go. It's absolutely not a good idea. So those are some of the like biggest concerns never mind if somebody has a substance abuse history okay or an eating disorder this is going to create problems so again lots of things to unpack and one of the other things that we're seeing is totally anecdotal there's some case reports some individuals are experiencing significant depression hmm. taking these medications And it makes me think of the previous weight loss medication called Romanoban that had to be taken off the market because it caused suicidal ideation and suicides, right? So when you remove somebody's like joy with eating, if that's their only joy and now they have no joy, that's a problem too. But I thought this
0: was taking the easy way out. Isn't that what Oprah (laughs) said? She won't go on Ozempic because it's taking the easy way out because it's so easy.
2: There's nothing easy about it. Yeah, totally. So, you know... Very different.
1: It's I hate that so much. It's such it's such bullshit because everybody who who's taking this is well I shouldn't say everybody that's a strong word but the people that she's referring to like yeah. I mean they've tried so many things and if you have metabolic problems and I, I just that's so there's so much judgment in that statement that bothers me so much. We also don't. We're not prepared for this medication as a medical system either. The one that I think of the most, you said don't eat three hours before bedtime. The best example I've been given so far of like how we're not ready for this medication is anesthesiologists. Like you can't take this medication. We tell people to fast for 24 hours before having surgery or 12 hours before surgery. So don't eat. People who have had an elective surgery or whatever know that the night before they're not supposed to eat once they go like after nine o'clock. And that's so you don't have food contents in your stomach so that when you have surgery, you don't barf them up while you're having surgery. Well when you're on these medications is that a week that you're not supposed to like you have to come off the medication probably yep. to like have a surgery and again that's just one example of like we are not fully prepared for like yeah. all the different changes that are going to happen secondary to it so so much things to be unfolded that that are and your examples were great thank you for giving those
2: Yeah the anesthesia is a big problem so any of my patients who are going for surgery I let them know this is, you have to either fast for longer or you can't take the med for a period of time before the surgery because otherwise the anesthesiologist is going to be visited with whatever your last meal was. And that's not going to help you in your surgical experience.
0: Yeah. Or it'll end up in your lungs. And that's awful and life threatening. Yeah.
2: Definitely. Now, I want to just talk about that disparities component with the cost of the medications it is criminal because, do you know, I just did a presentation and I was looking up what the cost of these meds are in other countries. Do you know, in France, it's $83 a month. Do they call it Ozempic over there? Yeah. I mean, it's almost cheaper to take a flight to Paris and get your med and fly back, right? Like, I mean, it's it's kind of ridiculous because it's over $1,000 in the US. It's kind of crazy, right? So So when we see, you know, I was looking in Japan, it's $169. Like, the range of prices are, you know, $100 and around there, plus or minus. And in the US, it's like more than tenfold, right? That is ridiculous and unfair. All right. The STEP
0: trials, they were done and funded by Novo Nordisk, which is the maker of Ozempic and Wegovy and semaglutide. So STEP stands for semaglutide treatment effect in people with obesity. And then I just thought it was funny to Aubrey and Michael correctly stated that it should be called Steppo, not Step, but that that was funny to me. <laughs> yeah, but uh, they were sixty-eight weeks long, so pretty pretty good size, length of a study. And there were several different studies, so I won't go into crazy amounts of detail. But Step One was the was the main overhaul one, which was like the effect on people's weight. Step Two. It's a it's semaglutide's effect on type two diabetes. Step three, it added a sort of intensive behavioral therapy and compared results. Step four was the one I mentioned before, where people were switched from semaglutide to placebo at week twenty. Step five was a longer, as a two year trial, and then steps six and seven were similar trials but done in Japanese, South Korean, and a Chinese population. And then step eight was testing semaglutide versus a different type of peptide called liraglutide. And the findings, 80, so the vast majority of people that took this medication, lost some amount of body weight, about 5%. So 80% of people lost 5% of their body weight. Half of people lost 10 to 15% of their body weight. And then the big thing that everybody wants to talk about is a third of people who use this lost more than 20% of their body weight. So that was what they mentioned was roughly on par with bariatric surgery. And they also saw, which I really want to focus on, improvements with their blood pressure and their cholesterol and their A1C levels. Briefly, I'm going to touch on the SELECT trial. I would love to get more input on this too, because this is one where I'm not just pretending like I'm bad at something so that you guys tell me I'm not. I had a really hard time finding the specific outcomes of the SELECT trial. I think it's maybe because I'm dumb or maybe because it's not fully done yet or it's just not completely published. But basically the SELECT trial was looking at how semaglutide reduced major adverse cardiovascular events or MACE, so things like heart attacks and strokes, by 20% in people that don't have diabetes, but these were people that also already had established Cardiovascular disease. So, they either had a prior heart attack, a prior stroke, or they had symptomatic peripheral arterial disease, meaning like their blood vessels don't work totally properly and like they're, you know, in their body. And they also all had a BMI of over 27. So, again, I had a hard time finding the full results of SELECT. So, if you guys have more insight into that, I'd love to hear it. But clearly, like these are meaningful results.
1: The SELECT trial has not been published, it was presented. The top line data was presented. And so it is well documented, but we don't have like you can't look at the study. You can look at baseline characteristics. But ultimately, again, like it showed that if you took basically Wagovi, which is the higher dose, there was a 20% reduction in the MACE, major adverse cardiovascular events. And, And this was in people who didn't have diabetes. So those were the two biggest things that stood out here is you had people who didn't have diabetes, because remember, a lot of this was in patients who had metabolic illness before. And the second part of it was, again, it was looking at, I mean, it had like 17,000 people in it, and it was looking at the Wagovi losing these cardiovascular events. And I have to be honest, this is the study that got my attention, because up until this point, I was a little bit like, another weight loss thing. And it's just going to, like, it, we're all going to be disappointed at some point, and I'm still partially there, that at some point this thing's going to disappoint us with all the things that Naomi's already brought up. But when you start to see that like people without metabolic illness are seeing a 20% reduction in things that are killing them, I think you have to take that seriously. What are your thoughts, Naomi?
2: I would not agree with you. On, they don't have metabolic illness. They have cardiovascular disease. Oh, yeah. These are not people with overweight and obesity who don't have any disease, right? Cardiovascular disease is already a thing. So these are people who are already, we know they're already at higher risk of having cardiovascular disease events in the future. So this is a high risk population. They don't have type 2 diabetes yet. But it is impressive. The size of this is massive, right? Seventeen thousand five hundred people. They gave them semaglutide two point four milligram doses versus placebo, and they found that there was this decreased risk of mortality based, you know, based on heart disease or this non fatal myocardial infarction or stroke. So yes, it's a really impressive study. Agree, but they did have metabolic dysfunction. So again, I think this medication treats metabolic dysfunction.
1: Can you clarify? I mean, that's a really good clarification already. So it said that, um, was it everybody had prior to that? The most common prior CV event was myocardial infarction. 76% of the patients had had an MI, had had a heart attack, stroke 23%, and peripheral artery disease (laughs) 8.6%. Furthermore, 24.3% had heart failure, two thirds had an A1C in the pre-diabetes range. So did they all have CV risk? Did I read that wrong?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, they all had prior events. Yeah, that was part of the requirement. That was the inclusion
0: criteria.
1: Was to have a prior event.
0: Yeah, the requirement is that they've all had strokes or heart attacks or peripheral arterial disease. And
1: then um, my next, you made a comment there, Naomi, about they don't have diabetes yet. Is your premonition that they, these people would have gone on to get diabetes? I realize it wouldn't be 100%, but is your assumption that like there's a high risk of getting diabetes in this population?
2: Yeah, there's a high risk, absolutely. It doesn't mean they definitely will. They might die before they do for sure but yeah that's the expectation
0: i would love to get naomi's thoughts about how valid so irrespective of the select trial which i am very excited about i think is really rad and i think we all are i think we can all agree on that like yay super amazing the step trials i think some of the issues that i have with it are one are they reproducible in real life And I feel like there have been some studies looking at real-time usage where you're not just in a a trial where you're giving the medication for free and that don't have as rigorous of exclusion criteria where these are, you know, real people in the real world that have depression and things that were screened out during the step trials and maybe don't have the same... They don't stay on the medication as long as in the STEP trial. Like, are we going to see the same outcomes as what we saw in the STEP trial that everybody's going to quote to say, well, a third of people lost 20% of their body weight. Isn't that amazing? What if everybody was 20% smaller? Isn't that great? Like, I don't know. I guess, do you think that this has, what are the real
2: world implications of that? And do you think it's reproducible that way? I do think it's actually Pretty impressive. So in our practice, we have a very diverse patient population across seven different clinical locations. So all over the place. And we are seeing numbers like that. It's really impressive. So individuals who are appropriate for the medication. Of course, in our clinic, we don't give everybody the medications on the first visit because even if you were on the medications, if you're eating poorly, you're actually going to end up sicker right like we talked about if you're not having your protein right and you're eating ice cream instead or i i i mean you know drinking soda and not taking good care of yourself it's not necessarily a good thing to lose weight and you're going to lose muscle mass and yes you will lose weight but it's not for a good reason just like you know you could lose weight for with cancer and that's not for a good reason so we have to make sure that we're very mindful about that and we take care of those things but we are seeing Really, really impressive results for many individuals who have tried all the lifestyle things. And it's a game changer in the fact that the weight is the thing that, you know, like the step trials are looking at, but it's the outcomes everywhere else the A1C improving, the blood pressure coming down, the person starts moving. I've had people who start on the medications and they say, you know, my joints feel better. That's even before they've lost weight. There must be some kind of effect that we just don't understand yet. So, so it doesn't act the same in everybody. There's a lot of people who are benefiting and getting a lot of their comorbidities addressed With one
1: injection. Naomi, I was going to actually ask you, and that's you led into it. Uh, How are you approaching? I'm I'm sure that the amount of times that the appointment notificate note that says like what the patient's seeing you for has gone up dramatically that says they're interested in Ozempic or all you know i'm sure that you're getting asked about it maybe by every patient i know that a primary care pr- friend of mine from residency said that he like basically wanted to stop doing primary care cuz every patient that's all he was seeing all day was people that wanted the drug and he couldn't do real primary care so i can only imagine how often it's being asked to you how are you approaching this on a new patient coming in and saying this is what i want like w- how do you approach that visit
2: well again so in our practice we're really about long-term health and so we have certain things that we make sure we address because we want people, if they're going to take the risk of taking these medications, and it's only been out for like five years, right? So, I mean, we want to make sure we don't know what happens in 10 years. We know what happens in animals with a lot of uh, lifetime dose, but what about humans? We don't really know yet. So, I'm very cautious and I want to make sure that all the other things are also addressed. So, our patients We really aim to make sure they're educated and they're not going to be the ones that are losing muscle mass, that they're going to understand how to respond to their body, how to take care of their body so that they maximize the benefit of each dose of this medication so they don't have to put themselves at unnecessary risk. So, when we see a patient at first, we do a full assessment and we usually send them for some labs and we want to see sort of what their eating pattern is. Then at the second visit and we can put those pieces together for an individual and explain this is what's going on. These are all your options and they will include lifestyle choices. They will include if somebody wants to do you know, certain meal plans or intermittent fasting or whatever, we'll talk about which ones would be appropriate for that person's metabolism and then medications as needed. Like we talked about earlier, not everybody who has excess weight is metabolically unhealthy. And not everybody who comes to our office is necessarily necessarily carrying extra weight, but they might have the beginnings of insulin resistance and they're like, "You know what? I'm just not feeling my best or I want to peak my energy or you know, I'm a CEO of a company and I want to up my performance and you know, level up." You know, yeah, we're going to talk about all the options and the different ways to optimize your mitochondrial function so you have maximal energy and then keep that muscle mass, so you don't age any faster than necessary, then if we need to reduce risks related to insulin resistance, then these kind of medications can be very helpful as an adjunct, but you still got to nail the other stuff. If you don't have good protein coming into your body, It's not good.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I want to highlight real quick because I wrote this down and you've just said it. I think to this point, we've said a bunch of times that you can be a larger bodied individual and be metabolically healthy. But we didn't explicitly say that you can have a normal size body and be metabolically unhealthy. And you said it there. And I just want to make sure that we're being upfront that like that is also a very possible. There's lots of people walking around who... If you visibly looked at them, you would say, oh, they're probably healthy and they can be very unhealthy metabolically. So thank you for hitting on that. I want to also ask you, just like, do patients ever leave pissed at you when you say you're not going to give them the drug? It's kind of like that patient who used to want, you know, like hydrocodone and you're like, I'm not going to give that to you. And they're like, I'm pissed and I'm leaving.
2: Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So usually we'll talk to people and we'll explain the risks and everything. And oftentimes we're not the barrier. Oftentimes it's insurance, it's the access to the medication. That usually pisses people off a lot. Yeah. But if we're saying, you know what, you have too many risks here, you have a family history or whatever, and this is not the right medication for you, people are understanding. They want they want to be healthy. They don't want to feel bad. Yeah. I wanted to make a
0: clarification or, or just a comment on that too, is that Jeremy, that like so the larger bodied person who doesn't have metabolic disease and the like when you look at them up and down and they look In American society standards is okay and they are metabolically unhealthy. Those two people, that doesn't take away the fact that they care about themselves or that they tried or that their their health still matters. Everybody, regardless of their size, has inalienable rights to being able to thrive and have and to seek out health or ignore it. <laughs> and, and I think that it just sucks that we're in a society that puts virtue on certain diseases and, and not virtue on others. And I don't know how we're going to fix that other than having really nice conversations and show at least behind the veil that as healthcare providers, we give a shit about this and we, and we care about having these conversations and we want to listen and we want to say very cautiously, or what was it? Cautiously curious. <laughs>
1: It's not everything you see on TikTok. It reminds me of, you know, parental Instagram posts where like you all those families are like, it's always just so beautiful. And we're always we're, look how great it is to be a parent. And the other 23 hours of the day, it's a shit show. And it's like, yeah. look how much weight <laughs> like, I lost. I'm and, I'm beautiful and I this hate is great. you. And the other 23 hours a day, I'm vomiting and I'm nauseous and I hate this. And it's and I'm having side effects. But like, look how good I
0: look. You're right. Because that's how we're praised. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's how the, the silly little wheel keeps on turning. But I'm just, <laughs> I'm very grateful to, for this opportunity in this conversation because these are hard things. And that we talked about a million times, like this is sticky and it's ugly, but it's exciting and it's also beautiful. And I think all of those things are true.
1: I found this uh, conversation to be really, really enlightening, Naomi. I think many people like the goal of the podcast is to say, what is a doctor's real feelings towards stuff that's going on in the medical world and many times the information that you get either through the internet or through television is is very watered down and broad and very careful with words and I think that we had a really good conversation here of like what doctors are really talking about and what your real experiences are doing with this medication every single day and I just I appreciate your candor and I think that this was going to be helpful. It was helpful for me and I think it'll be helpful for people to hear.
2: I'm so glad you know it's it's fun. I think if all of our patients knew how much we care and how much we talk about how to improve what we can do for our patients. I think it would be helpful for them to know. So I love that there's a podcast that they can see. We we are really always trying to find the best solutions to really truly take care of each person that comes into Absolutely. our office.
0: And I think that it's also modeling positive behavior to have other healthcare professionals have these conversations with each other honestly and openly. And it's okay if you disagree or that you can hold someone's feet to the fire and then be happy and excited about their answer. And And that's what's great about medicine and about how we can communicate and just, it's not too hard. It's not too hard to talk about these things and to learn more and to keep continuing our lifelong learning. So I just, Naomi, I, I'm so grateful that you were able to join us today. Do you have any specific resources that you think are particularly helpful for For people, I'm going to link to like your bio and that kind of stuff, but do you feel like there's a source that you send your patients to if they want to learn more about some of this kind of stuff in this topic? You can
2: see I'm a book person. Okay. So there probably are Instagrams and, you know, whatever social media sites and all that. I think there's a few books that are really helpful for people who might be interested. This is not specifically about the medications, ways to understand the metabolism. And one of them is by Ben Bickman, and it's called Why We Get Sick. And I think it does a really nice job of explaining insulin resistance. And he's a professor that specializes in insulin resistance. There's also a book for somebody who's really science-focused, and it's very advanced, but absolutely fantastic, called Metabolical by Dr. Robert Lustig. He is... Just changing the way people understand fuel and how the body works. And then there's a third book by Chris Palmer called Brain Energy. And this is also another really amazing book that links metabolism with mental health. So those are three really great books for different levels of interest. They're great as audiobooks as well.
0: That's interesting, Jeremy. I feel like usually when we ask this question to our experts, we not so frequently get books. We tend to get other type, like more web-based resources. So I love it. And yeah, for our listeners right now, uh, you might see it on our reels and stuff, but Naomi's actual background, not a Zoom chosen background, is her entire wall of books in her (laughs) library. So she's practicing and preaching. That's just one of them.
2: I love it. love it. I love it. So yeah, I'm such a nerd, but then I get to share all this information with all my patients.
0: That's wonderful. All right, well, to wrap up... Yeah, forgive me, I'm adding uh,
1: these to my Amazon to read list.
0: I love it. It is, we just finished up, or it's right around (laughs) Prime Day. All right, well, to finish up, there is no easy way out. There's no such thing. It doesn't exist. We're all just looking for control, right? So listen to your doctor friends.
1: (laughs) The amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guests to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast.